And we are back for episode three. This week, we're going to be looking at a couple search and seizure cases. Search and seizure is protected under the Fourth Amendment and is one of the more important amendments, in my opinion. Although I suppose I'll likely end up saying that about any amendment we discuss. They're all important. Now, the Fourth Amendment, again, protects you from the government. The Fourth Amendment specifies that in order for your property to be searched, the government or police must have probable cause and a warrant describing exactly what they're looking for and where they're looking for it. So, to get things moving today, I'm going to start with what I consider to be a pretty quick and easy case, at least for the Supreme Court, and one that I find particularly interesting in terms of Supreme Court cases. It's also just good information to have if you choose to commit a crime, but I want it stated that I'm not encouraging anyone to commit crimes. I want that very, very clear. The case is called California versus Greenwood, and it was decided in 1988. It went like this. The police thought that Billy Greenwood was dealing drugs, but they didn't have enough information to, you know, present and get a warrant. So they decided to search the trash that was left curbside. In his trash bags, the police found evidence of drug use and so were then able to get the warrant to search the house. When they searched the house, they found drugs and arrested Greenwood. In question here is the warrantless search of those trash bags. Was that a violation of the Fourth Amendment? The court here said no, it wasn't. With Justice White writing, they said you can expect to have privacy in your trash bags when you put them out for collection, stating that the trash is, quote, readily accessible to animals, children, scavengers, snoops, and other members of the public. Basically, once you put your trash out to be collected, you can't expect any privacy around it. Anyone could walk up and start digging through it. And this time it just happened to be the police. So, for the future, if you kill someone, don't put the body in the trash. For legal reasons, that's a joke. Please don't kill anyone. Don't commit any crimes. But do you see what I mean about the case? Quick and easy, light and kind of funny. But let's get serious now. Speaking of warrants, let's turn our attention to the next case we'll be discussing today. Matt versus Ohio, decided in 1961. I like to think of this one as kind of, um, look what happens when the police are frustrated and a woman knows her rights. The facts of this case could have been very different had Map not known what should be going down. So, with that, the story goes like this. Three Cleveland police officers arrived at Ms. Mapp's home because they had gotten a tip that someone who was wanted in relation to a recent bombing was hiding there, and that she had a good amount of policy paraphernalia in her home. The officers knocked and asked for entrance. Ms. Mapp called her attorney and then refused to admit them without a search warrant. So, the officers left, told their superiors what was going down, and then started surveilling the house. A couple hours later, more officers arrived, and this new, larger group of officers tried to gain entrance to the home. Ms. Mapp did not immediately come to the door when they knocked, and so the officers forced entry. Ms. Mapp was coming down the stairs to answer the door, and when she saw the officers in her home, she demanded to see the warrant. One of the officers uh, produced a piece of paper, which he claimed was a warrant. Ms. Mapp then took the paper and stuffed it in her bra. A physical struggle broke out in an attempt by the officers to recover the piece of paper, and the officers handcuffed Ms. Mapp for being, quote, belligerent. She was then taken upstairs to her bedroom, and the officers at this point decided to search her entire home, eventually finding in the basement a trunk which held pornographic materials, which was against the law in Ohio at the time. It was on the possession of these materials 
that Ms. Mapp was ultimately tried. I just want to rewind for just one second. You'll remember that I said the officers had a piece of paper they claimed was a warrant. At trial, the prosecution could produce no warrant. So this means that the police entered and searched Ms. Mapp's home unlawfully. Ms. Mapp initially appealed to the Supreme Court under a First Amendment violation, stating that having these materials was well within her rights. And the Supremes didn't really make any definitive ruling on a First Amendment issue. Instead, they wrote their opinion under the Fourth Amendment. Justice Clark wrote the opinion of the court and used Mapp versus Ohio to establish a powerful legal precedent throughout the nation. He used this case to more fully establish the exclusionary rule, which up until this point had only applied in certain states. This opinion extended it throughout the nation. And the exclusionary rule basically says that evidence gathered as a result of violation of someone else's rights is not admissible in a court of law. So in Mapp, because there was no legitimate warrant, the evidence gathered to support her conviction, the pornographic material, was inadmissible. And you may have heard of the exclusionary rule under a different name, the fruit of the poisonous tree. The way the evidence was gathered was tainted, so the tree. And so the evidence itself is tainted, which is the fruit. This is not to say that an individual could not be tried for a crime supported by the tainted evidence, but the prosecution must prove that crime was committed by different means. So, for example, say I was arrested for embezzling and the prosecution obtained my bank records where I had for some reason specifically stated how much I had embezzled, where it was now, but they'd gotten those records as a result of an unlawful search, those records are no longer permissible in court. But uh, say I had an accomplice who testified that I had done all these crimes and the accomplice's testimony would be admissible. Therefore, I'd be convicted based off of that testimony, not the bank records. So with all of this in mind, I want to pivot and discuss our final case. And this is one you've probably heard of, and it's also out of Ohio. It's called Terry versus Ohio. And even though you probably know this, I'm still going to go over the facts of the case as succinctly as possible before launching into the results and all of the ripple down effects. So this case was in 1968. A plainclothes police officer saw Terry and another man, Chilton, standing at a street corner. Both men kept walking by a store, looking in the window, walking down the sidewalk a bit further, turning around and walking back the way they came, again looking in the window. Terry and Chilton did this a while, and then a third man, Katz, eventually came over, talked to them for a minute, and then walked off. Terry and Chilton continued walking up and down the sidewalk in the same pattern, and then eventually walked off in the same direction as Katz. So the officer had been watching them a while, and decided at this point that he thought these three men were, in his words, quote, casing a job, a stick-up. So he went over, identified himself as a police officer, and asked them to identify themselves. He had never seen these men before. Just, I want that stated. The men mumbled indistinctly as a response to the officer asking them their names, and so the officer grabbed Terry, spun him around, and started patting Terry down. He found a gun inside his jacket, and so he searched Chilton and Katz, and finding no weapons on Katz, but found a gun in Chilton's pocket. At this point, the officer had Terry and Chilton taken to the police station, where they were both formally charged with carrying a concealed weapon. The opinion of the court was delivered by Chief Justice Earl Warren, and to his credit, the Chief Justice tried to tailor the opinion to the facts of this case specifically. 
you'll see justices do this occasionally as they know that their opinions can have broad effects and they also, all having been lawyers themselves, know that lawyers will argue the meaning of a law if there's an extra space in a sentence. However, in this case, the court ruled that because the officer was acting on more than a hunch, because he was a police officer, and he said that the frisk was intended to protect himself, that frisk was lawful. The court also made an important distinction here. They said there was a difference between a stop and an arrest and a frisk and a search. They held that an officer has the right to stop someone and detain them briefly if they have a suspicion that there may be a connection to a crime. If this stop leads to a suspicion that the individual is armed, the officer is allowed to frisk them for weapons. If this stop and frisk gives rise to a probable cause that the individual is committed or will commit a crime, then the police should be allowed to make a formal arrest. So this case where we get the terms stop and frisk or sometimes what referred to as a Terry stop. Like all Supreme Court decisions, there are always consequences from, a, from the decision. Terry versus Ohio had wide-reaching consequences. Supporters of the decision say that a Terry stop allows police officers to stop a potential crime from occurring because they don't have to have probable cause, just reasonable suspicion. Others say that Terry gives police officers a tool for racial profiling and only increases the rate of police brutality against minority communities. In addition, critics say that this decision infringes on an individual's Fourth Amendment rights, also known that if you stop someone, you're taking their time, and if you frisk them, you're far more likely to find something than if you hadn't, which I think seems obvious. Lowering the standard from probable cause to reasonable suspicion is a large step. In New York City, which has an official stop-and-frisk policy, 90% of those stopped in 2017 were African-American or Latino, aged mostly from 14 to 24. This policy gives way to the school-to-prison pipeline, the prison crisis, and so much more, and it is part of the reason we are still seeing these protests. Sometimes, I think the Supremes get it wrong, and in my opinion, this is one of those times. That's it for us this week. We'll likely revisit search and seizure in the Fourth Amendment at some point in the future. If you have a case you'd like me to take a look at, you can find me on Instagram at the Supremes Podcast. Share it with your friends and let me know what you think about Terry. Did the Supremes get it right or were they wrong? Rate and review wherever you listen and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.